Aotearoa New Zealand's association with beer started off in a small corner of the country in 1773. It was by the crew of the Resolution, captained by James Cook, who found the cooler climes of Dusky Sound provided a much better environment for brewing than trying to ferment while at sea. Their experimental brew kicks off Greg Ryan's new storytelling, his book Continuous Ferments, which looks at the history of beer and brewing in New Zealand. As a history professor, Greg brings a depth to the book that takes in beer's relationship to the social and economic fabric of the country right up to the present day. It's rich in detail from the early breweries, various attempts at prohibition, the six o'clock swill, the dominance of Lion and DB, and the relatively recent rise of the craft beer market. I can't believe there's no mention of spates, but I'm sure there will be. You don't have to love beer to appreciate this book. There's some gems there if you do. Greg Ryan is in the Christchurch studio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So you're a professor of history. You've concentrated largely on sports history in New Zealand, uh, but now looking also into the social history of of alcohol and alcohol use in New Zealand. Is, is, Is one sort of to one degree or another, connected to the other? Oh, they're, they're certainly connected, and not just in terms of turning my hobbies into my research interests, but, yeah, absolutely they are. They were both parts of certainly very strong male cultures in New Zealand right from uh, early settlement, and they cross over in various ways with uh, debates on alcohol and sports sponsorship and, um, and other things and drinking cultures around sport. Just listening to DB and Lion, uh, the options were fairly limited back in the day. Uh, when did your personal appreciation of the product take off, Greg? Uh, well, I navigated what was available in the 80s, as most students did. Um, I had a bit of an awareness, I think, of uh, what Max had on offer in the 90s. But actually, really, I got to thinking about it uh, when I was changing trains in the middle of Belgium in a small railway station cafe that had very high-end Belgian beer, you know, each in their own glass, each poured in a particular way, and it really got me to thinking, here's a country with a particular beer culture. New Zealand's got mm, what it's got. Um, why the difference? How did we get to where, to where we had got to, which wasn't always a good place? So when you go about researching a history like this, how on earth do you confine it? Or is that the great challenge in some ways? Do you begin at the beginning? What's the project been? Um, yeah, it, confining it is very difficult. I've had to be reminded more than once that I wasn't writing a history of prohibition, that I wasn't writing a history of alcohol more generally. I was trying to focus on beer. I mean, I originally went back to some of the, the known histories of uh, particular New Zealand breweries, um, Lion, some from Spates. Uh, But then a lot of it became much easier once um, uh, digitisation of New Zealand newspapers in particular, uh, meaning that you weren't just sort of sitting in National Library turning pages and hoping you would find something. It was a lot easier to, um, to narrow down the search. But yeah, confining it has always been the issue because beer doesn't just sit in isolation. It's linked into economies. It's linked to um, barley and hops production. It's linked to political debates around prohibition. So it doesn't just exist in its own little place. The book is beautifully presented. The cover's peppered with old beer labels. Where did those come from? Um, some of them I've acquired at various Sunday markets. Some of them are actually off trade me, uh, so they're still doing the rounds. One or two from um, National Library. Uh, one or two that I think I've tried, but most of them a bit older. 
Waitamata Ale. Yes. Yep. I, yep. Have, I think that was my first shandy, and the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. So let's um, let, let's talk also about something you've just alluded to, which is that it's not a history of alcohol. It is a history of beer. And why is that? One day you'll write the history of sherry, but, but <laughs> um, probably gin first. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but why narrow it to beer? Is that a class-related thing, or is it simply to do with what came first? It was. It was always the dominant beverage in New Zealand. Uh, we were settled by predominantly British beer-drinking people. I'm sure if we had been settled by Italians, we would be drinking more wine. But. Um, it was the dominant. Um, it was always the dominant um, beverage, and following right through you know, the cultures of um, beer drinking, we don't we don't have, as I say, rugby racing and gin. It was always linked into um, beer. So I was interested in focusing on that history, how that culture of um, beer and brewing came to New Zealand and I guess I was conscious to some of what's been written about alcohol in New Zealand history was an emphasis on excessive drinking and people uh, trying to drink themselves into oblivion to cope with isolation on the other side of the world and I always thought well if you really wanted oblivion then why would you go to so much trouble to create a brewing industry and so to me it was always more than just the drinking it was it was very much a, a culture that was inherited from uh, Britain and continued here. Where are we at now? Our consumption of beer, I don't know what it's like per capita, but our place in the beer drinking world has retreated. And, and that, oh, you know, as, we've fallen as, as, yeah. dramatically. We were top four or five in the 50s and 60s. Uh, I think at the moment we are 27th uh, in per capita consumptions halved in about the last 50 years. So clearly, what there's an emphasis on, um, in terms of beer, on quality. Uh, far more than quantity, uh, but people are also drinking other things, um, more wine, more spirit-based. So, yeah, in that sense, we we have retreated uh, quite significantly and will probably keep going down, to be honest. And our lives are so different too. The six o'clock swell all about um, getting, you know, the, the early closing and um, yeah. dashing in after work, um, when work used to be predominantly perhaps nine to five for many people. There's, there's, a, there's a long social history just associated with, I don't know, everything from working men's clubs to, to sports clubs to... Uh, beer is, uh, rightly or wrongly, is the, like the so- social lubricant or the gathering point. Oh, I think it was always it was always the social lubricant, and right from the beginning, you know, people were very conscious in new settlements of um, creating um, hotels as the centre of community. You know, they were meeting places. They were places where you um, did business, where you found jobs. Sometimes where you attended inquests and funerals. Uh, but having a brewery and having um, having beer was a part of that. So absolutely a, um, a social lubricant. And I think um, part of the issue we had was that people attempted over the years in some of the prohibition movement to uh, to separate all of that out, to almost put beer in its own little box, preferably consumed behind frosted glass in its own right. So we separated out from entertainment, we separated out from um, from food and from other things. Long history of the unions getting involved in disputes over beer prices. Yeah. This was seen as some kind of workers' right, was it? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, it's very much so, and it was sort of regarded as a, you know, a continuity, the workplace, and um, and after work. And the, yeah, there's a long history about um, prices and 
some very intensive lobbying by by the unions to successive governments about you know, beer taxes and other things. I think some of the most colourful after the 1958 uh, black budget where the hotel workers union w- wrote to Walter Nash and said, look, why don't you be honest and come out and say that the uh, uh, Labour Party is now a prohibition party. So that was probably the extreme end of it. But absolutely, there was always a real sensitivity to um, the working man being able to um, get his beer at a good price. Let's go back to the beginning. When was the first reported brew made in New Zealand? April 1773, down at uh, Dusky Sound by um, uh, um, James Cook's crews on the second voyage as a cure for scurvy, or so they imagined. So the notion was that um, they thought having something fermented that would sort of, I guess for want of a better term, make, make your, um, your stomach and your system bubble a bit, was believed that this might be some sort of preventative to, uh, to scurvy. So the crews were issued with um, malt rations at one point and, and um, later on, if we take a malt concentrate, add water to that, add uh, manuka to that because there weren't hops, then it makes a, um, a palatable beer. Um, they eventually worked out it was not a good cure for scurvy at all and Cook had so many remedies on the go that nobody was quite sure which was working. But, but the idea, again, was that it was regarded as essential. Medicinal, almost. Yeah, absolutely medicinal. Well, beer was always, um, right through uh, the 19th century, it's regarded as essential because it's, um, it's health-giving, it's medicinal. That, you know, that old in, uh, image of the rotund John Bull with the tankard was very much, you know, beer is about, is about health, and it's also a healthy counter to spirits, which were considered to be damaging and um, potentially potentially destructive. So right from the beginning, all of those themes come through and the way new breweries are welcomed, the way beer is advertised, all of those connections. In the early settler years, uh, it was common on pass- for passengers on ships, including children. I mentioned the shandy. I don't know when that began. A little bit of beer, a little bit of uh, lemonade. But was it a thing? Oh, I think I think um, that was there um, probably from uh, the very early days. But what they tended to do was uh, what was often called small beer or dinner ale. Brewers would make beer at different strengths. So you might um, put your um, brew through the first time and get the strong beer, and then you might uh, wash the grains through again. Uh, and come out with a weaker beer and possibly even a, a third time, so the the weakest version that might be, I don't know, 1% alcohol or something like that. Children's uh, rations, even. Yeah, that would, be what yeah. You would, that would be what you would give to the children or it would be what you would have um, with, uh, well, sometimes with breakfast even or after, or after a hard day's work. You didn't necessarily want something intoxicating, you wanted something refreshing. And it's kind of ridiculous to think of it as an alternative to water, but actually, seriously, in the UK, it was it was considered safer than oh, some it, of the water supplies. Oh, in the UK, and actually, in um, certainly in Dunedin in the 1860s, um, when the Leith had become incredibly uh, polluted, a number of people said that drinking good Dunedin ale is considerably safer than uh, some of the local water, and there, there were elements of the same thing in. Um, Auckland and no doubt in some of the other towns and there was a suspicion of water because it wasn't sort of brewed. At what point did beer become a significant component of colonial life in New Zealand? I know you struggled to get stats before 1853 
Um, so hard to know how much had been imported or, or where it sat relative to yeah. other products. Uh, but but when was it entrenched? Would you say? I think by um, the end of the gold rushes and through the late eighteen seventies, it is you know, it's the national alcoholic beverage. It, it's I mean it's dominant in terms of liquid volume, but even if you break that down into you know pure alcohol uh, through beer. You know, if beers say five percent and spirits are forty percent, you um, you work at what's the pure alcohol content? It it's the dominant drink um, certainly by uh, by the eighteen seventies. And what's interesting is that early do-it-yourself uh, domestic brewing that began, you know, on a on the endeavour. Uh, was being lost, actually. And so what was replacing it? Were we getting the first established breweries? Yeah, it had been lost as a skill in Britain. I mean, partly with urbanisation, industrialisation, and people moving from traditional settings. A lot of people lose some of those domestic skills, and so they're then served by um, bigger breweries. And while some settlers who came out to New Zealand undoubtedly had the home-brewing skill, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't guaranteed. So most of the settlements very early in the piece, within the first few years, um, have a brewery or sometimes two. Wellington and Auckland within the first couple of years, um, Christchurch within three. Dunedin takes surprisingly longer, but that's still within about six or seven years of settlement. 1860 I've got here for Dunedin. Um, Dunedin Brewery. That might not have been the first uh, one. No, there was a there was a uh, another one around. Sawyer's Bay for, Brewery. Yeah, Sawyer's Bay in, in 1857. Yeah. Oh, Again, welcomed very much as you know, beer is good for the local economy. It's a good um, counter to spirits, and by the way, we can brew better than the Australians, which was. A <laughs> when did we, when did we get to the biggies? You were mentioning Dunedin earlier. What was the role of Spates in in the history of the breweries? Well, Spates emerges as a separate brewery in um, 1876, and there had been a couple of other dominant breweries in Dunedin before that, um, Well Park and um, uh, one or two others. And I think Spates, as much as anything, they were well organised, but of course they passed the crucial test of um, having an extremely good brewer, uh, William Dawson, who produced very good beer, uh, and my argument, which may be controversial in the South, is they really ought to have named Spates um, Dawson's because I think it was Dawson who really shaped the beer more than uh, James Spate was was the traveller. Um, he was the one who promoted the product, but uh, Dawson uh, created a beer that sort of divided New Zealand. It was strong, uh, heavy, the sort of thing that you possibly did want to have as a shandy here and there. Which is not how it was described later in its life. Uh, no. <laughs> and I wonder if you could, I guess from the purists' um, uh, perspective, describe what these ales, what these beers would have been like that far back. Most of them in terms of uh, alcohol content are probably uh, 6 to 8%. They are probably a little darker than uh, most of the um, sort of pale ales doing the rounds now, though not entirely. And then over time, the um, the beer strength comes down. Partly, it's uh, both world wars with um, campaigns for efficiency, but also uh, increasing the tax rate on beer to encourage brewers to uh, produce at a at a lower strength. And both of those measures uh, pull the beer strength down. Particularly after 1942, the government legislates a beer strength at effectively about 3.8 percent, and that's what really ruins spates as a 
major national player for quite some time because the, their beer, their, their weaker beer, would no longer travel around the country uh, and endure as well as it had. One so the, there's a really significant change. Yeah, and one of the things about Spates, it had that big physical presence in Dunedin. Uh, yep. And um, these were big breweries, right? Yep. And, and yep. We, what were some of the others to pop up and, and when? Big physical structures in a city. Well, the big ones in Auckland, anybody, any Aucklander will remember going down Kyber Pass Road and um, the um, uh, the Lion Brewery there, the Captain Cook Brewery. So there was a merger of the major Auckland breweries of the Captain Cook and the... Um, uh, the great northern Campbell and Aaron Freed companies in the late 19th, early 20th century. And then in Auckland, uh, 1930 is the real oddity when DB emerges in a climate which in many other respects was very bad for new breweries on the edge of the um, Depression. But you know, again, they had a very shrewd entrepreneur behind them in Henry Kelleher. So those were the major players. There were um, you know, Staples in Wellington, there were uh, three major breweries in Christchurch, which again fed into the New Zealand breweries merger of 1923. Are they still there, some of those physical structures? Obviously, the Tui Brewery in Mangatanoka is uh, still a yeah, striking physical structure, but the ones in Christchurch, have they gone? Um, yeah, they they did not do um, very well the last vestige of ours with the um, 2011 earthquake. Of course. Uh, Spates has still got some presence in, in Dunedin. The... Um, uh, the major lion site in Auckland, of course, they moved out to Tamaki in a new uh, purpose-built brewery about 2010-11. Um, you look at the disasters that befell these brewers. They weren't immune from weather events, kiln fires, but you also talk about the uncertainty on yeast for fermentation. Why was that such a big thing? It was... Um, well, initially it was very difficult, to think, and nobody's entirely clear how you bring, even for bread making, how you maintain yeast strains on, on long voyages. But, of course, yeast being um, a living thing is you know, is prone to um, uh, to go a little bit feral and take off in its own its own directions, and I'm certainly no scientist, but there, was, there were always problems with, um, you know, with rogue strains, and especially... If breweries weren't scrupulously um, clean, then things would um, take on some very strange lives of their own, and anybody who's done any home brewing will have encountered that at least once. Greg Ryan, our guest, Continuous Ferment, a history of beer and brewing in New Zealand. You're listening to Nine to Noon on uh, NZ National. Let's look at some of the really interesting um, developments, 20th century developments. I know there's some early efforts to regulate the industry, um, three goes, I think, of acts in the uh, 1860s through to 1880s. You've said that the first two decades of the early 20th century were the most critical in the history of beer and brewing. And why was that? Um, the rise of uh, the Prohibition movement, as much as anything, um, you know, if you look at it in the context of New Zealand, as with parts of North America, New World societies where people were very conscious of reacting against what they saw as you know, the old world vices of Britain, we don't want the the poverty, the the filth, the chaos. And so there was almost this exaggerated determination in New Zealand to make a fresh start. And even although by the um, late 19th century, New Zealand is drinking about a third of what the British are drinking, there's a very strong prohibition campaign to at least regulate alcohol, if not get rid of it entirely. And I think some of those measures um, really put put pressure on the industry, uh, but in ways perhaps not always intended. They tended to 
over time squeeze out some of the small players and allow the bigger breweries to dominate. Uh, they also created drinking environments that weren't particularly pleasant. Let's look at some of the other key um, moments along the way. In. So, so you know, Prohibition nearly won. December 1919, yeah. right? Nearly yeah. won. What, how yeah. close was it? Uh, in the end, in the second referendum, about 3,000 votes. Um, in April 1919, it had been successful within New Zealand. The civilian vote was in favour of Prohibition. Uh, but once the votes from um, servicemen overseas came back, 80% of which were in favour of continuance, uh, we uh, continued with alcohol. But the referendum at the end of the year was actually slightly closer. And even in the 20s, there was still a something like a 48% vote for prohibition. There had actually been as high as 55% in 1911, but it um, needed a 60% threshold. So it was a major political issue mm. um, through that period. And also tied up very much with the women's suffrage, mov- suffrage movement as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, so six o'clock, strangely enough, I sort of associate that with the 50s and 60s, but did it come in much earlier than that, the six o'clock closing? Six o'clock closing actually came in in 1917 as a wartime measure. It was supposed to be for the duration of the war and six months beyond, again, as a sort of wartime efficiency measure, you know, the idea we can contribute more to the war effort if we're uh, sober and sensible. It was quietly made permanent at the end of um, 1918 and on the back of the end of the war and the influenza epidemic. It never really got the debate that uh, it might have. But I think the crucial point, as you say, is it's associated with the 50s and 60s because 6pm closing comes in, but you never come across the term uh, swill or vertical drinking or any of those things until about 25 years later. And so for me, the issue was not closing the pubs at 6pm. The issue was lowering the beer strength. And once you lower the beer strength but still have that 6pm closing, uh, you see it almost immediately in the stats. People are drinking more to kind of get the same alcoholic effect. So consumption just goes up and up and up uh, dramatically across the 50s and 60s. And the breweries quite like that model because... uh, you don't need to put much effort into the pubs because they're selling 80 to 90% of their beer in one hour of the day, so you don't crowd them with furniture and um, you don't have any option for entertainment or anything else. It becomes quite a good business model. Just skipping forward, what's happened to pub culture over time? Actually, the other thing that occurs to me, TV images uh, probably have also embedded that idea of the 60s for the 6 o'clock spill because they're always hauled out. You know, <laughs> We're talking about oh, the history ab- of those. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And I think, it, I think it, the swill was, um, it was urban in certain places where the ratio of pubs to people was a bit skewed. But you kind of can't have it both ways because there's also a lot of accounts of after-hours drinking from people who presumably didn't need to swill. So I sometimes think it's a bit... A bit overblown. Yeah, uh, um, just pub culture over time because the jug was always the way the beer was delivered for a long time. And I'm getting up now into the you know the 1980s and mm. uh, and beyond. Did it still hold uh, for whatever reason a much higher place in the echelon? Now it's everything from RTDs to shots to you know whatever your, your poison is, or these days increasingly just preloading because. Kids yep. can't afford to, can't afford yeah, to go exactly. out. But, but where, where was the era where you would associate going to the pub, going to the cook for a jug in Dunedin or whatever? Um, when did that era kind of have its day? Uh, I think it starts to peter out in various ways in in the 90s. And I certainly remember um, you know, as a student the 
some of the licensing authorities became more concerned at a certain point about some of the you know, drinking behaviours around student establishments and some of those were um, uh, curbed a bit. But of course the drink driving campaigns um, changed and the, the tolerance there and the thresholds and the notion of people driving to the pub and driving home again. So there were quite a lot of um, uh, changes in those settings. But also uh, the big breweries kind of started divesting themselves of a lot of the pubs that they had owned and very closely controlled through the 80s. So um, you know, there were there were different providers, and you get um, you know, some of the theme pubs emerging and uh, the, the whole pattern of um, eating and drinking out changes as well. Then we get the craft beer era, and we'll finish with this, and it's you know not much time to give it, but it does get quite a bit of coverage. Um, struggling as it might be at the moment, actually, is many, many products that are perceived to be discretionary spend yeah. uh, are. But, um, you know, what were the original sort of driving forces of that? Because it was a renaissance of beer in some ways, wasn't it? Yeah, it is, and it's not just confined to New Zealand. It comes, um, Britain had probably started in the 70s with the campaign for real ale, where people are looking for some of the traditions against the dominance of uh, the big six breweries over there. United States, the same. I wouldn't necessarily say that some of the early breweries that popped up in New Zealand in the 80s and even into the 90s were necessarily craft. They were trying to offer an alternative. But a lot of those influences do start coming in from overseas. And it's, yeah, it's in beer, but you also see it in, um, you know, everything, different sorts of um, cheeses and condiments and breads and things you find at markets and the slow food movement and a lot of those uh, a lot of those things, and people, New Zealanders going overseas uh, in increasing numbers, the, you know, the classic OE, especially uh, from the late 60s and into the 70s, and people coming back with new experiences and new ideas and wanting to replicate things. So all of those factors come into play as well. Greg, thanks very much. Greg Ryan, who is a professor of history and this uh, book on the history of beer, if you want to follow up, is Continuous Ferment. Let's check it's published by, it's one of the university presses, it's Auckland University Press.